Welcome to another episode of Criterion on the Couch, a podcast from two amateur film buffs as they make their way through the vast Criterion collection one title at a time, all from the comfort of the couch. We record each episode immediately after we watch each film. I'm Adam Yurick, along with Jim Massessa. And today's episode features Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Jim, take us away with the Criterion specs and summary. It is 1971, and journalist Raoul Duke barrels toward Las Vegas, accompanied by a trunk full of contraband and his slightly unhinged Samoan attorney, Dr. Gonzo, to cover a motorcycle race. What should be a cut-and-dry journalistic assignment quickly descends into a feverish psychedelic odyssey. Director Terry Gilliam and an all-star cast headlined by Johnny Depp and Benicio Del Toro show no mercy in bringing Hunter S. Thompson's excoriating dissection of the American way of life to the screen, creating a film both hilarious and savage. This film uh, was 119 minutes long. For those of you who don't want to do the math, that's one minute shy of two hours. Uh, It came out in 1998. It's in color, 2.0 surround sound, and it's in 2.35 to 1 aspect ratio. And if you're following along at home, this is spine number 175. We've never really said what these movies are rated that we're watching. This one is rated R, which I assume is for drug use and maybe cursing. If there was a lot of cursing, I, I couldn't understand what they were saying half the time anyway. Yeah, I would say the movie ratings really don't, it doesn't really matter as much until you get into like the, the late 80s, early yeah. 90s when PG-13 came into Well, this effect. is late 90s. Yeah, so this this would make a difference in terms of what the, what the movie's rated, Uh but like Raiders of the Lost Ark was rated PG. That movie gets made today, it, it it's gonna get rated PG thirteen yeah. or even R. And and a lot of older movies weren't rated at all. So it, I think that's kind of why we haven't really touched on the. Uh, I mean, Royal Tenenbaums I think was rated PG thirteen. Yeah, you know, I recently watched Powder, the old uh, <laughs> yeah nineties movie, which I didn't realize Disney had put out. Yeah, yeah, it's a Disney, Disney movie, movie, but that's rated PG thirteen. Yeah, Disney's put out PG thirteen movies. Not anytime recently, they wouldn't. Back when we were kids, it happened a lot more often. Yeah. I have The Journey of Natty Gan on DVD, which was one of my favorite Disney movies. But I was rewatching it, and there's like dog fighting, like legit dog fighting in this movie. Live action? Yeah. There's no way they would ever show that now. That's crazy. So anyway, rated R. And I appreciate you doing the math on the uh, the amount of the runtime of the movie, because I don't don't like math. It sure felt like two hours watching it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, we both have not seen this movie before. No, this was actually a... uh, request that we received to review this movie from listener gina from listener gina so we uh special ordered this and uh yeah (laughs) i'm not sure i will ever watch this again yeah you know i've heard a lot about this movie the people who do talk about it i'll kind of rave about it like oh this movie is amazing and so good honestly if someone were to ask me what is this movie about i would not be able to answer the question and i don't think that it's Again, we watched Brazil. This movie's directed, you know, as Jim said, by Terry Gilliam. All of his movies are these out there, interesting interpretations of stories. I don't think the camera is ever held perfectly horizontal. It's always on an angle. Yeah. He, uh, yeah, you know, that's the thing. He always does these really low angle. I wrote that as a note that he, he does throughout this whole movie. Every shot was from a low angle or a high angle. Mm. The camera was rarely ever parallel, like it was or level. It was always like at an angle, especially the hallway shots. He did these like, and he has really wide lenses, yeah, close up yeah. to the characters. He does a good job of you know making you feel uncomfortable when you're watching the movie for with those shots because you're so close to these actors and they're like sweating and. But yeah, in terms of a, it's not really a plot driven movie. No, 
the characters don't learn anything. There's no any type of story in that sense. No, there's not even really a plot of something to accomplish. There kind of is right in the beginning, the race. I mean, that's the original right. reason they're going there to cover this motocross race. But that's over with in the first 20, 25 minutes of the movie. And then it, it reminded me almost of The Hangover, although The Hangover has a weird plot to it. But it's a plot. You know, you have to. Right. The thing in common that The Hangover and this movie have are that they both take place in Las Vegas. Both take place in Las Vegas, but it's a lot of like jumping from one scene to another, like very different scenes. You're in a different location, different actors coming in. There's not really any consistency other than the the main characters. Everybody else kind of comes and goes. And this really felt that way, too, with a lot of like guest star cameos like popping in for like. Yeah, there were a lot of those. Yeah. A lot. Like Christopher Maloney. I'm very sorry, sir, but you're on the late list. And so your reservation has been transferred to the Moonlight Motel, which is just out on Paradise Boulevard. Cameron Diaz. See, we're here getting little footage on the race for a television series. (laughs) I thought maybe um, we could use you. Christina Ricci. Um, Can I do these from TV? Really? Toby Maguire. God damn, I never rode a convertible before! Vern Troyer. Oh yeah, Vern Troyer. Excuse me. Uh, Mark Harmon. That's up upper end of the 60s. Ali beaten by a human hamburger. Penn Jillette. Step up to this fantastic machine just 99 cents. Your likeness will appear 200 feet tall on a screen over downtown Las Vegas. Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah, I saw him. <laughs> What's the trouble? So I kind of just described the main part of the story. You know, they're going to Las Vegas to cover some motocross event. And they're basically on drugs the entire time. They being Johnny Depp, who's playing Raoul Duke. Who is really Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. Because Hunter S. Thompson, the famous, he you wrote, know, He wrote author. this as a short story, I believe, first, which then became a book. Right. I know they like this was a big thing in Rolling Stone. Yeah. I think they serialized it or something where they ran the pieces of it in the magazine. So, yeah, it's Johnny Depp playing that character and then Benicio Del Toro playing Dr. Gonzo, who is his attorney. Yeah. And Samoan. I guess. I want you to understand that this man at the wheel is my attorney. He's not just some dingbat I found on the strip. He's a foreigner. I think he's probably Samoan. I don't know if Benicio Del Toro was really out of shape for this movie or if he's wearing like a fake gut. I'm sure he gained the weight. Man. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's really it. They're just on drugs. Lots of different drugs the whole movie. A lot of drinking. I didn't really follow a lot of what was going on. They're just kind of bouncing around from scene to scene, going to casinos, then out in the desert, then back to another casino, to a hotel, destroying everything they're like involved with. Right. Which is, I guess... Pretty appropriate with Johnny Depp because I've, you know, I know he's very <laughs> famous for trashing hotel rooms. Mm. I would say we could give this Terry Gilliam credit for he just like goes so over the top in these scenes and, and the amount of detail that, that's in them. When they go to the, is it the Tropicana? The ho- or I, I get, I was confused the with first what. One. Where they, yeah, and, it, and it's almost like a funhouse casino. No, that was like a circus something. Casino Circus proudly presents the Flying Fellinis. Yeah, I mean that was so weird with like the trapeze artists yeah. and the um, 
the carousel bar was kind of funny. It, that was kind of interesting. <laughs> and all the things, it reminded me of a little bit, which is some of the way that they were, like the dealers were and the whole setting reminded me of, if you've ever seen National Lampoon's Vegas Vacation, Yeah. there's a part where uh, Chevy Chase's character Clark gets taken by Uncle Eddie to this other casino. Eddie, this place is great. <laughs> they don't have any of these games at the Mirage. Pick a number. I, I'm great at that. Coin toss. Eddie, these are my games. Give me 20 bucks. War. You know, Russ and I play this all the time. I'm in. There probably literally is a casino like that in Vegas somewhere. Yeah. And just one probably exactly like the one that was portrayed in here. And again, it's a setting that kind of set everything up to like perfect for hallucinations. Because are they hallucinating this? Is this really what it looks right. like? You're never kind of getting an outsider's perspective on, you know, what's... I think that's what's kind of interesting is there's never a point in time... Like, we're always seeing everything from Johnny Depp's point of view throughout the whole movie. And I don't think there's ever a moment where we see what's going on from another character's perspective to kind of get what's going on. We're always in this, like, weird, like, Johnny Depp's camera, you know, his angle. Anytime we, we see another character's talking, it's from his perspective. You know, whether he's, like, laying on the floor, sitting in a chair... We're not really ever seeing an outside observer's view on everything, with the exception of maybe the diner scene towards the end of the movie, mm-hmm. which felt like one of the only... That got pretty dark. Yeah, but it felt like a scene that we were... It just wasn't a... like They weren't super tripped out on LSD. Right. They weren't hallucinating it. It was a much more real scene, I guess, in the sense where you're like, okay, I think all of this actually happened the way it was laid out. Yeah, I mean, there were a couple spots right in the beginning where he's driving and then he starts like swinging his arms around because he thinks there's bats attacking him. Yeah. Suddenly there was a terrible roar all around us and the sky was full of what looked like huge bats all swooping and screeching and diving around the car. But then they pull over the car and he opens the trunk. He's looking around describing what's in there and then they drive off and there's a dead bat on the ground. So, I mean, at that point I thought, oh, maybe he is actually seeing this stuff. But then later, I think it's in that circus... Well, they're at the bar before then, not the merry-go-round bar, but the other bar. And he's looking around and everybody is suddenly like a lizard person. Mm -hmm. Well, that didn't happen. Right. So just because we're seeing it as the viewer, just like the bat on the ground, doesn't mean it really happened. So maybe we are just seeing what he's seeing. But you're right. I don't think there's any real scenes when it's not just his kind of perspective on what's going on. So you can't really trust anything that happens in this movie either. Right. There was a lot of vomit, too. Oh, that was the worst. Man. That was, I don't know that I've ever seen a movie where it's like a scene, whatever, and then all of a sudden it's just an overhead shot of a toilet and someone just like vomiting in it. And it was like, uh, that was, yeah, yeah. that was pretty uh, disgusting. And multiple times, I think, Benicio yep. Toro yep, he's vomits all vomits over the place. He vomits in a suitcase, he vomits in the toilet, he vomits in the car, like he's just vomiting everywhere. What I did like was that when he, the scene where he, they're driving on the strip and he vomits like on the window of that other car and there's like the more distinguished, you know, the two distinguished couples or whatever yeah. driving. The guy uh, who's in the backseat who kind of ends up yelling at him. I don't remember the actor's name, but he was uh, the like head person in that old Nickelodeon show called Hey Dude. <laughs> hey Dude. Uh, oh. Back in the nineties, yeah. and he's been—he's a character actor. He's been in tons and tons of television and movies and Which stuff. Which our friend Gina, who requested this movie, knew an actress who was in Hey Dude. Oh yeah. Small yeah. You know who else was in this movie? Uh, Catherine Helmond, who played Mona on Who's the Boss. She had a bit part in this. She was one of the uh, hotel clerks, like towards the beginning, where they're checking in. Your suite isn't ready yet, but 
someone was looking for you. Okay. Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't. And she was in Brazil. Like, she's the mom on Brazil. Oh. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Terry Gilliam reusing... Maybe he's a huge fan of Who's the Boss. Maybe. I think this, well, this wasn't before Who's the Boss, but I think uh, Brazil was before Who's the Boss. Yeah. One of the, th- one of the things that I thought was good with the movie is definitely the soundtrack to kind of set it a little bit, you know, definitely really to set the era of when it was happening. Yeah, there was it a is lot of so- music. It is somewhat of a critique. Vietnam was pretty much mm-hmm. in the heart of Vietnam when this was going on, but there was a lot of, you know, we had like Jefferson Airplane and the Rolling Stones. Yep. One of the... Dylan. Yeah, Bob Dylan. One of the parts that I liked the most, and a lot of this was just the the actual like song playing in the background, playing over whatever the um, montage of things. But there was a cool part that I liked where they um, are driving away from the one casino from the Tropicana, mm-hmm. and uh, there's like a instrument uh, instrumentation of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band playing as the score to the scene. Okay. noticed i was listening i'm like oh yeah that's sergeant pepper as they were playing i thought that was kind of an intro it was the only one i noticed that i could recognize that was like a popular song from that era that was being done with like instrumentation versus the regular song playing oh, oh, well yeah in the credits they did viva las vegas and it was the dead kennedys instead of elvis but that was in the credits at the end but that was still a regular song though playing right right it wasn't an instrumental or anything right uh, you know it's kind of funny uh with the music in the beginning I think on the radio, One Toke Over the Line is playing. I think when they're driving, mm-hmm. um, which reminded me, there's a very hilarious video you can watch on YouTube from the Lawrence Welk show where, you know, he had people come on and they would do like good, wholesome songs. And a couple comes on and sings One Toke Over the Line. One Toke Over the Line, sweet Jesus, One Toke Over the Line, sitting downtown in a railway station, One Toke Over the Line. It's it's so it's so you know unexpected and like you get the feeling nobody really understands what they're singing about. Right. But uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll put the link to that in the show notes. <laughs> the other Jefferson Airplane again, the White Rabbit song, that mm-hmm. was a, one of the few songs where it's happening in the movie as well. Right. That was Jefferson Airplane actually. Yeah. Well, a you know they were right. They're playing they're it on like a yeah. tape recorder. Let me make sure I've got this all lined up. You want me to? Uh... Throw this thing into the tub when uh, White Rabbit peaks. Is that it? And then it goes to flashes back to a concert of yeah. Jefferson Airplane actually playing it in. So in one of the flashbacks, so this movie is supposed to be taking place in 1971. He has a flashback to 1965. Well, it's the 60s, but it's, you know, he uh, does LSD, I think, in a bathroom or something. That's where Flea was in that scene. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Yeah. But he's doing a monologue on top of that. There was madness in any direction. At any hour, you could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right, that we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle. That sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark. 
that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. I feel like that was the only point in the movie where he was actually kind of making sense as a narrator. Like he was talking about the time period and like what was going on in the world and how they were trying to make a difference. And it was understandable. I feel like everything else in this movie was just, it was almost like gibberish. Like they thought people were out to get them half the time, but there's no... Well, they were so high the whole movie. In most movies, something like that, there would be a character or... Even if it wasn't somebody who's actually out to get them, they would think like it is a person who's out to get right. them. And you would be, you as the audience would be following that along. In this, there's none of that ever comes to be. It's just, they talk a lot. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, I think that's kind of the thing with Terry Gilliam though, is that he doesn't, he doesn't make traditional films. Traditional film would be a resolution at the end. You know, Hollywood tries to usually always, you know, make you feel good. There's not a lot of movies that get made anymore uh, and that ha- had been made in which the end of the, like, the movie ends and you're just like, what the hell? Like, that, this sucks. Or not not the movie sucks, but just there's no satisfying right. resolution, no resolution to the anime movie to but make you feel good. There wasn't anything to resolve in the first But that's the whole, it's almost the whole point. It, it kind of reminds me of, uh, from the movie, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Adaptation. Yeah. Where that's like what Charlie Kaufman is trying to do in that movie where he's he famous like that one big scene in the movie where he's in the Robert McGee screenwriting uh, lecture. Sir, what if the writer is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens, where people don't change, they don't have any epiphanies, they struggle and are frustrated and nothing is resolved. More reflection of the real world. The real world? Yes, sir. First of all... You write a screenplay without conflict or crisis, you'll bore your audience to tears. That he's almost telling you is what like, the movie you're watching is about. Right? Yeah. I mean, I but I I feel like that's what Terry Gilliam has done. We we watched Brazil and it was kind of the same thing. The movie ends yeah. and you're kind of like, wait, what just happened? Did, is that really happened? Plot. I mean, it was weird, but it was a you know. Well, it had a plot to where we were like. You know, there was like a, a clear bad, a good guy and a bad guy in a sense that yeah, we were. And there was something he was trying to accomplish. Like right, and you knew what that right. was. Yeah, uh, true. The the one thing I mean, I feel like this is a com. The whole film is really just a commentary on the American dream, in a sense. There was a lot of American flags right. in this movie, and they were used interestingly. There was always a, a huge American flag hanging in the room, but yet they also used little American flags for like a bandana or you know wiping his uh, mouth after he threw up. Right to to huff ether. Yeah, you know, uh, you know or, speaking of the ether, which I thought was a weird drug to carry with them, along with these other drugs. Follow me on this. This is two movies that both feature Ether and Toby Maguire. Cider House Rules. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually thinking the same thing. So yeah, that I was wa- waiting for uh, Charlize uh, Theron to Theron? To, Michael Caine. To make a appearance in this movie as well, mm-hmm. since there were so many other like weird actresses just popping up. But, yeah. Eh, she never did. Yeah, it might be a little, might be a little much. I will say, I mean, I'm not really the biggest Tobey Maguire fan, no. and he had a, such a tiny part in this movie, but I really liked, he played being uncomfortable, and his, <laughs> his costume and that hair was just completely ridiculous. It was just so good, because I was like, is that Tobey Maguire? There was a lot of ridiculous hair in this movie. No, but even him, like, he's always, he plays this, always plays these, like, boyish characters, yeah, and yeah. he's this, like, creepy, like... Very bleach blonde hair, balding, really long, like... Yeah, he looked like that other guy. He always plays that same part. He was in, like, uh, There's Something About Mary. He was, like, the uh, oh the creepy buddy guy who... Yeah, I know what you mean. He's in Groundhog Day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he, I think in There's Something About Mary, he actually had long hair, yeah, maybe? Yeah, I think he does. 
I would say, I, I think the biggest thing with this movie is really is Johnny Depp's performance. The difference between Benicio Del Toro and Johnny Depp's performance was that Johnny Depp just had this way of how he was moving throughout the whole movie that was, Benicio Del Toro was kind of like this just like angry, crazy drug addict where Johnny Depp's character was more subtle with things. I, one of the scenes that I liked the most was when he's typing. It's towards towards like maybe the last third of the movie, and he's alone in the in the room, and it's dark, and he's on his typewriter. But the way that he's typing is he's kind of like he's a keyboard player, like playing a note here, a note there, and he's just like moving his hands like very fluidly up and down on the keys, and like pausing, and I don't know, I just kind of like that. He just had this whole weird way of like sinking down into chairs and yeah. and like slithering around in his body and stuff. I thought that was good. I thought that was really good. If anything, the best part of this movie was just kind of watching Johnny Depp. Having now seen him in so many other roles where he just kind of becomes as famous of an actor as he is, he right. really like embodies every character that he does. And with this one particularly, uh, I think he does a really, really good job. To me, it was believable that this was a person who just has all these like weird quirks and weird behaviors. It wasn't somebody just like, you know, playing over the top parts to make this person look weird. It was a weird person that you were watching. Like he walked yeah. like bow leggedy you know, in all the scenes, he's always got that cigarette that's half bent, half burnt. Right. In the little cigarette holder. In the cigarette holder. Which is funny. Uh, he's like mostly bald with like a kind of a comb over, mm -hmm. which surprised me the first time you actually see that. Like he has a hat on for the, yeah. the majority of the and first then he's movie. Bald. Yeah. First half of the movie. Yeah. I don't know. It was very, it was believable. I wouldn't, I know I would have known this was Johnny Depp, but it was really a different character, I think, for him. Then most things, uh, maybe like Benny and June, that was, he played like a... I haven't seen that. Weird, yeah. But yeah, most of his parts are not this style. There was that other movie recently. Well, the closest Mordecai. part you could attribute to the over-the-top like movement of his body would be in Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah. Like Where, the Jack Sparrow character but is even very... That, he's like drunk most of the time. Well, yeah, I mean, he's, he's Keith Richards in that movie. Yeah, As, as he has said that Keith Even though Keith, Keith Richards... Richards was in that movie, the second one. Second one? Second one. No, he's in a later one. You've seen it all, done it all. You survived. That's the trick, isn't it? To survive. It's not just about living forever, Jackie. The trick is living with yourself forever. Johnny Depp, after the first movie came out, he said that he based his movements and his voice and everything and his mannerisms on Keith Richards. So that's why Keith Richards From the Rolling Stones featured on the soundtrack of this movie. Yeah, yeah. Jumping, Jack, Jumping Jack Flash, I think, was the one. It was at the end of the movie. That's the It's All Right song? Yeah, It's All Right, Jumping Jack Flash. That Bob Dylan song that they played made me think that Penn Jillette's in this movie, and Penn mm -hmm. Jillette's most favorite artist in the world is Bob Dylan. Great fun fact. A lot of tie-ins in this movie. Yeah. Uh, how about the Gary Busey Gary uh, Highway Busey Patrol? Gary had, like, one of the most professional acting parts in this movie. Well, I think this was pre-head injury, uh, which is why he's crazy, if, if you did not know that. Go watch Rookie of the Year. He wasn't crazy yeah, Gary yeah, Busey. That's true. He was in a motorcycle accident, I think, and... Hmm. Where he went. That was like in the early 2000s, I think, or something. Yeah, like it's that. just ironic watching it now since he's somebody you associate with like being crazy and being right. on drugs. And in this movie, he's the police officer who is not crazy and not on drugs while everybody else. Well, I thought that be. was so odd because he looks at his driver's license, looks at his face, and I'm like, is he, does he know? Is, is, is like Giant character famous or yeah. he knows who he is? What I put in my book as of noon is that I apprehended you for driving too fast. I advise you to proceed to the next rest area. Stop! 
I advised you to proceed to the next rest area. Your stated destination. Right. And take a long nap. Or I'll make myself clear. Well, how far is Baker? I was sort of hoping to, uh, I don't know, stop there for lunch. Right, he's letting him off. Right, he's letting Depp him off. Seem to know. And I think he gets it, but he just is not ignoring him. Like, he just doesn't care what he's saying. He's not listening to what he's saying. Right. And then there's that part where he kind of, there's this pause, and he's like, May I have a little kiss before you go? I'm very lonely here. Yeah. And then Giants was like, it, the next scene is him, like, speeding away or whatever. And yeah, You know, there was another part where I think they got a phone call, or it was a telegram. It was the telegram from Gonzo. To, uh, ha- to Thompson. Um, this telegram came for you. Well, actually, it's not for you. It's for uh, somebody named uh, Thompson, but it says care of Raul Duke. Do you, do you, does that mean anything? Yes, yes, it means a lot. Thanks. Uh, Which I think was a reference to Hunter S. Thompson. Right, right. right. I thought that was a little And Hunter weird. S. Thompson, there's a, he has a cameo in the movie oh. where he is Johnny Depp, like when there's the Jeff- Jefferson airplane scene. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, I recall one night in a place called the Matrix. There I was. Mother of God. There I am. Like that's Hunter that's actually Hunter S. Thompson in the I scene. But it looked a little different. Yeah. Like when they're when he's actually in the dark room with the lights and all. Yeah, because cause Johnny Depp is made up to look like right, what right. Hunter S. Thompson looked like. Yeah. I've seen photos of um Hunter S. Thompson. There was a really good documentary once, I think, on Rolling Stone or just like the rock and roll like journalists, and there was parts of clips on hunter s thompson and stuff like that because he wrote for a bunch of different magazines in the 60s and 70s hmm. but he looked yeah big glass like aviator glasses bald uh balding even had the same hat that johnny depp wears like that was kind of all based on, Has all he based done on any, is, are there any other movies that are based on anything he's done this is uh, it this is like the famous I, I oh wait there was one uh recent rum i think it also had johnny depp oh rum punch yeah rum was punch? that hunter s thompson i think uh, I don't know. I don't think so. Well, it'll be in the show notes if it was or not. No, that, that wasn't Tonner S. Thompson. That was, um, uh, wasn't that the same guy who did, uh, uh, Justified? The show Justified? No, yeah, but it was a book. Yeah, but the book wasn't called Justified. It was, Oh, uh, it wasn't like Elroy something? Elron. Elron, no, Elron Hubbard was a founder no, no, of Scientology. No, no, I was gonna say Elron Bunquist, who was a character in this movie. No, um, I can't remember his name. We'll put it in the show no, notes when uh, we No, uh, Justified was based on a short story called fire in the hole by i don't know yeah <laughs> well we'll figure I didn't out look that the up, by the way. Is. i know that we'll, we'll uh we'll put that in the show notes then to figure that out yeah well anyway i remember when that movie came out that rum punch whatever it reminded me of trailers for this movie it seemed very similar where he's yeah. like a drunk guy on a weird mission yeah I don't really have much to say about this. There's no, I mean, I don't know how you describe this movie. It's just like randomness. It, again, going back to the hangover, was the second hangover where they wake up, or maybe it's the first one with the tiger in the room? That's the first one. That's the first one. And, you know, it's just like a mess. And they're like, what's going on? Yeah. That's like this movie all the time. They're waking up. There's crazy stuff on the walls. He's got like a lizard tail. A maid is like kidnapped for a couple minutes. Right. And then they like tell yeah. her. I think we should uh, put her on a payroll. See what she comes up with. You think you can handle it? What? One phone call every day. Don't worry if it doesn't add up. That's our problem. You'd pay me for that? You damn right we would. I, none of it made sense to me. I didn't no. understand. Well, like, but I mean, like, that's the whole point of this podcast. We we just finished watching the movie, like, maybe 
10 minutes before we start we start recording. Yeah. It's not like we're sitting here researching this and going through all but the different things. But you have to research and, a movie after you see it to know what it's about? Well, no, but I mean, there's more to like the context and, but it's a movie that came out in 1998. So if it's supposed to be a, you know, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the novel came out in the 70s during a time in which I feel like it would have had more impact on those reading it. And which is why it was so popular, because it was a critique on American life at the time. I've never read the novel. I know just that that was like how it was. If this is supposed to be a movie that's like critiquing the 70s, the 60s and 70s, a comment on, you know, Americana or the American life during Vietnam, I don't think it really does a great job at doing that. There's way better movies out there that provide a better look at what was really happening during that time. I mean, this whole movie is just like an LSD trip. Yeah. And it's just completely off the walls. I guess if you are into that type of stuff, then to you it would be an, an amazing film. But to me, like to me, Brazil was a much better Terry Gilliam film like 12 Monkeys is. Uh, 12 Monkeys isn't in the Criterion Collection, but 12 Monkeys is a great movie right. because it's it's making you sit there and think about something that's going on. You're kind of questioning what's real, what's not real, what are the motivations of the characters, and it's a commentary on you know, life like 12 monkeys is again, another one of his like dystopian in the future stories. Brazil again, was that like has no real time period. Right. And if you really sit back and think about the movie, there's commentary on things that were happening at the time, you know, time continue to happen, like the whole big brother aspect. But with this film, I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing that, I mean, Terry Gamble was probably the right person to make this make the novel into a movie. Yeah, He definitely has the style for it. Yes. I think that's what's you could watch this movie and appreciate the style appreciate the settings the camera angles the cinematography of it were you know was worth seeing but watching this like hey weeknight when i "Ah, let's watch fear and loathing in las vegas no no. No, i would never i I, yeah some of the effects were i guess for the time like to me 98 doesn't seem that long ago but it really is i mean there's no cg it was all practical effects like all those lizard scenes like those were definitely practical and that was there was like maybe a 30 second scene and I was thinking watching like, man, they must've spent a lot of money yeah. on this one scene. That's such kind of like, I don't want to say a throwaway, but it, it doesn't really mean anything. Well, there's things later. I mean, he does, he's wearing that like lizard tail later yeah. on. So there's a lot of weird stuff where things from earlier in the movie kind of fall. And I did notice that at the very end when he's in the room typing up everything and that when it's like kind of panning through the disaster of a room they're in, that there's the baby with the space helmet on from earlier in the movie oh, when they the do trapeze. the trapeze, hmm. which was kind of weird. And he has the lizard tail on and stuff. There's just a lot of, I mean, I'm sure there's more. props because they didn't have a lot of uh, No, I, I feel like that was definitely put there for a reason. So I don't know. But there were some other scenes when like he's looking at the carpet and the pattern on the carpet starts coming out of it. Which yeah, it looked it looked really well done, especially for 1998 too. Because I'm watching it and I was thinking like, how are they doing this? And then there was another scene where like blood starts coming out of the carpet. Which yeah, I mean we've seen that a million times. Right. I guess like effect wise for a practical movie watching experience, I liked the scenery. I liked the craziness of Terry Gilliam, but right. just from like speech, understanding what's going on. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's the whole thing with Terry Gill- with Terry Gilliam is that it's watching his watching one of his films is an experience. Yeah, because now we're just sitting here, you know, we're going on and on, and we're kind of, you know, it's not a movie you're gonna forget. You maybe not want, you maybe will not want to watch it again. It's not. I don't know that it's a movie where it's like, oh, it's conf- like that the plot's confusing to the. 
because there's so many different things going no, on it, that a second watching is going to let you under. It's not like this movie's memento where right. you're like, oh, I got to watch this movie no, again no, no. to try to figure out what was going on. I shouldn't say that the plot was confusing. I was confused at the lack of plot. I kept thinking, am I missing something? Like, what is happening that I'm that I'm not following? Like, I, am I supposed to be paying attention to this character or this? But there wasn't anything. It's not like the plot was so confusing that I couldn't follow it. It was just that I was expecting there to be a plot. Right. Was confused no, yeah. when there wasn't. Yeah. So if you really love this movie, sorry we're uh, disappointing you. I don't really have uh, much else to say about it. I don't know if you do. No, I mean, I think we kind of covered... I mean, it's really just our raw reaction to watching the movie. There's not a lot to... Uh, it, it's definitely interesting because I think with Brazil, you had seen the movie. You liked the movie a lot. To me, For me, it was the first time watching it. Mm-hmm. It was a long movie. Mm-hmm. It's like three hours long. The, the edit that we watched that's yeah. in the Criterion Collection. So for me, like it was definitely, you know, we have a different perspective, but I think it's interesting that both of us having never seen this movie before. Um, and I feel like this is much more of a movie that you would have seen before. I didn't even realize you had never seen the movie yeah, before. There was so, like one scene where I was watching it and I, I feel like I caught that on something before. But I've seen maybe the first minute of this yeah. movie a couple times, the opening. I mean, obviously the movie poster, like the cover of the movie yeah. is really famous with yeah, the yeah. weird you know, Squiggly distortion of, of Johnny Depp. Like I, I got, I knew what I was getting into at least with some of the actors that were in it and you know, that, that angle, you know, they um, did stay in the, uh, the Flamingo hotel in Vegas in, I think it was the last hotel they're staying in. And I also stayed in the Flamingo. Oh, yeah. I think it looked a little more modern when I stayed in it. Yeah. So I've never been dated. to Las Vegas. So I, I it's, wouldn't know. It's all right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that's it for this episode of criterion on the couch. Uh, you can find the show notes at criteriononthecouch.com slash fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, next time, we'll be discussing the classic film Easy Rider. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook. On Twitter, we're at Criterion Couch. And on Instagram, we're at Criterion on the Couch. I'm Adam Murek with Jim Massessa. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Mm-hmm.